Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now, poetry offers an intense perspective on the issues and feelings most prescient in the poet's mind. To that end, Ali Alizade's latest collection, Towards the End, challenges a range of concerns troubling our contemporary world today. So, Ali, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you. Thanks for having me, David. The title here seems a little ominous, towards (laughs) the end. (laughs) What are you alluding to, good sir? The end of the world as we know it. But the world as we know it, I, you know, I think as as I was finalizing the book, um, you know, earlier in the year, and I'm thinking, well, this is a bit of a melodramatic title. And then I turn on the news. No, actually, I just step out, out, you know, to the backyard and I can't breathe because of the ember storm. You know, this is interesting. We're learning new language, courtesy of the times we live in. So there is, you know, parts of Australia burning. Soon then we have the, another of the horsemen of of the apocalypse, disease being unleashed in Wuhan, China. At the exact same time, we had, you know, Trump trying desperately to start the Third World War by by killing that Iranian um, general. And I thought, well, the four horsemen are here. So my, my title wasn't too wasn't too inappropriate. But in, in some ways, I don't necessarily see the physical demise here. It's, it's more mm. for the values and concerns um, that we hold dear. Now, if I may, I'll just read mm. the first poem and we can discuss it in a little mm. more detail. Okay. It's called The Singer. This is how I croon. My son singing Humpty Dumpty, a melody he screams out in the absence of my song. I wasn't nearly as loud a toddler. My voice vanished from the void of my father's car. Oh, father's ear, sorry. I remember him humming vaguely while driving, wrapped up in his own world. In mine, my son's medley moves on to Jack and Jill, recalling the tune I whistled yesterday. Did it ever exist? Did I ever have a voice, even as an infant, too sick to emit a whimper? I remember Dad crying out the lyrics of an old Persian dirge, warbling from the speakers not long after moving to Australia. Homesickness, haunting his larynx like a ghost howling in a haunted house. So much for parenting, the loss of the music I never could muster. I'm here for my son's nursery rhymes to enact the presence of unsung words. Mm. Now, my interpretation, and this is the thing about poetry, it's open to all sorts of uh, possibilities. The music, the music of the child, the music of the father, and the music of your father, Mm. and your music seems to get lost in there somewhere, (laughs) and and your voice, because Mm. there's your father recollecting Persia. The music is a way to connect Mm. with his past life. Mm. Your son, Humpty Dumpty, Jack and Jill, these are the the medleys of of the future. Mm. So this is my interpretation, Mm. but I'm just wondering Mm. if that coincides with your intention. But also then the question, your voice, your music? Mm. 
Mm. Oh, great. I'll just want to say that you read it very well. And I think uh, I, I would like you to do all my readings <laughs> from here on, if that's okay. Um, look, I mean, the, the, I guess I wouldn't call it an irony. It's, a, it's too, too weak a word. But I guess the contradiction is that it's actually written in my voice. You know, the whole poem is actually in my voice. It's a little bit like, you know, Plato um, in, in the Republic saying all this, you know, nasty things about art. But the, the Republic is written as a play with characters. So, you know, there's that sort of, uh, again, I, I guess it's, it's, it's paradox, I guess, is the word. So um, so here is a poem in which the poet is, you know, saying, I don't have a voice, but it's actually nothing but the poet's voice. I think that that's sort of the loss there, and it's something that I identify um, in the rest of the collection, is not so much for a voice of personal, you know, emotional, autobiographical identity, but one of something deeper, something more more meaningful, which I identify to be the voice of universal human subjectivity. Now, that's one of the oldest things that poets have tried to do since, you know, the time of the great epic poets. They want, they've wanted to speak on behalf of humanity. Now, this is something that modern poetry has certainly rejected strongly, beginning with romanticism, which it says, look, you know, it's just you, the lyric I expressing your feelings, all the way to sort of like postmodernism, and which says, you know, the lyric I is bad, but any mention of we is also not okay. You only you only express the immediacy of language, and that's all you ever do. Um, and I kind of feel like, well, I don't, I mean, I, I, I'm indebted to all these traditions, but the quest that I guess I felt as I was putting the poems in this book together, and I, and I wrote some additional poems, and I arranged the poems in a very particular way that kind of tells a sort of a story, um, it's not so much about finding my personal voice, you know, how do I, how do I express myself? But it's about, well, what is the voice that is needed for our times? And I, th I think that's the kind of the big universal question, uh, which is perhaps even a political question. Well, you raise some very mighty topics, mm -hmm. political, philosophical, mm. social. Um, there's one called Saga. The more obscure and undecidable, the more palatable. Anais Scarl still bothers me, and she's been dead for at least a decade. Her husband, comically diffident, a downtrodden man, once a communist. How much more fascinating, radical, with my grandparents as emigres, escaping Stalin, coming to Iran to found a Trotskyite cell, instead of banal matriarch and dull ex-patriarch, immersed in gossip and religion. As a child, I hated only a few things more than being left alone with them. He once believed in the dictatorship of the proletariat. When he died, I couldn't summon a single tear for my Ababa. Mm. To his grandson, he'd been so simple, meaningless. As for Anne, perhaps not really possible that she migrated as a teenage girl from Baku to Iran for a more exceptional reason than giving birth to a son who'd meet a woman who'd then give birth to me. Genes are a poor substitute for the fable of revolutions, a universal family. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but this notion of needing mm. a fable, mm. needing a saga, that's momentous. Yes. And yet the irony or the opposite is the sort of mundane... Mm. mundaneness of life in some mm. ways mm. yeah totally i mean i i think you know this is being my third book um of poems i i kind of exhausted that uh, sort of like um you know again reflection on the personal and familial and the mundane i know that's what a lot of poets do and they do it well you know since 
I mean, who's to say that William Carlos Williams was wrong to talk about a red wheelbarrow? Okay, good. Knock yourself out. But And I've done that. But I kind of feel like, especially, you know, the times that I was writing this collection or putting it together, and I, it kind of begins around the time that I live in Dubai, and this is 2008. And I see the global financial crisis. And, and you know, that really impacts me. And, and I feel like... Perhaps there is a tradition of poetry that is much more easily impacted by what's happening in the world, by the economic, by the social and the political, than there are other traditions. You know, the the great sort of, I mean, this is, this is, again, it is also a paradoxical thing. We think about romanticism, we think, well, it's the poetry of, you know, some, some, um, English dandy wandering around and looking at daffodils. Okay, it's that. But it is also the poetry of the same dandy as a young person going to France to be a part of the French Revolution. So, so you know, it is that sort of... Again, I feel like um, um, there is a, a tradition of poetry that is more public, that is more... Uh, you know, we can talk about it's political, but in what, what sense of the word, as, 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 as people you know, listening to this and listening to your excellent readings of my poems know that I'm not a preachy person. Nevertheless, these are poems that express a desire for a universality of the human experience. Mm. I mean, you've got some lovely lines at times. I mean, uh, the economy's manifest destiny mm. <laughs> and that juxtaposition. I mean, manifest destiny was part of the American sort of agenda, mm. expansion prearranged by God over an indefinite area, and yet now applying that to the economy as if that is now mm. what is determining Mm. our lives, those sorts of images mm. and juxtapositions that you've created. Mm. I forget which one that was in now. <laughs> uh, Alphabet City. Ah, uh, Alphabet City, yeah. yeah. So that, that sort of, those, the images that you're able to um, provide to make us think more profoundly, mm. more deeply. Hmm. Yeah, thanks. I, 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 mean, I mean, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's a kind of, again, reference to historical things, like, as you said, Manifest Destiny. But that, that poem in particular is about a cafe that used to be in, in um, Northgate called Alphabet City. And, and, and you know, I mean, I, I was away from Australia for some time. Then I, you know, came back and, and I didn't move back to Northgate, you know, couldn't afford it. But, but eventually when I went back and I thought, oh, well, I'll go to this cafe that, where I used to hang out. And it's just not there anymore. And, and I thought, well, hang on, why? You know, what, what is happening here, really? And I thought, well, it's the, it's the concreteness of this city being, being pulverized due mm. to the forces of capital. And nobody, I mean, it's, it's an absurd thing to say, well, I don't want this old, you know, cafe to be knocked down and replaced by, I don't know, a residential flat built with, you know, to, to enhance value of capital for the investors. Who am I to say no to that? But, I mean, that's a very symbolic and visible way in which our lives is, are being impacted by this extraordinary juggernaut of capital, to use a the, Marxist term. The juggernaut of capital, dis, mm. in, in many ways, destroys the spirit mm. of a place. I mm. mean, one of the things I've noticed in my suburb mm. is that uh, when I first moved in there, the dwellings were sort of 70s mm. style and such like. And now they're being pulled down and two-storey brick mausoleums going from fence line mm. to fence line. Um, where's, where's the old quarter acre block and the veggie patch <laughs> in the backyard? But it's, it's a w way of how life is represented, how we see ourselves mm. leading our lives. Mm. And mm. it's being destroyed in many ways. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think capitalists would see this as creative destruction, getting rid of old bad things. And, and there's, there's tons of ideological uh, discourse out there that said it's all good. We're making it more, I don't know, eco-friendly, apparently. I'm being told new buildings are good. We're getting rid of bad conservative architecture, replacing them with new progressive architecture. But that's, that's in, in a way, that's rubbish. But at the same time, some people actually believe, believe this. That. Yeah. But you d you're destroying the touchstones of mm. how we identified yes, with yes. our lives and such like them. And totally. Yeah, the, the images and the, the way, um, mm. what what had meaning for yep. us in the past. Absolutely. And I think this whole way of thinking is, a, is, is what I think is coming to an end, this idea that we should basically destroy everything to rebuild, you know, the spirit of capitalism. I really feel that our belief and trust in it is coming to an end now, you know, whether or not, you know, it's irrelevant whether like Bernie Sanders wins the democratic, it's not a question of whether or not we're going to have a massive, genuinely socialist movement. That's that it's too early for that. I think Marx would agree if he was around. It's way too early for that. Capital has to completely exhaust its ability to generate itself before we can talk about the proletariat. Mm. And that's, we're not there yet, may not be there for another few hundred years. But I think this is the beginning of the end. The fact that we are having this conversation and we are saying, look, it's actually making the city unlivable. I mean, forget their politics and the ethics. I'm not a rabid anti-capitalist. If, if capital was going to make our lives better, I would say, yeah, sure, I'm for it. Why not? You know, I invest money into, you know, making, buying new bedsheets from time to time. That makes me an innovator, maybe. You know, okay. But, but this is something else. And I do feel... If my understanding of the zeitgeist is correct, we as a species are moving away from the belief in infinite growth of capital. It'll be interesting to see how that progresses mm. because, yes, it's impossible to mm. sustain uh, in that regard. And I think certain things have been done in society that have tried to perpetuate mm. that, mm. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily working that well. You're on 3CR, this is published or not, and by the way, it's a perfect time to mention that we need subscribers to keep us going. So think about, uh, if you're enjoying the discussion, subscribing to 3CR uh, and um, listening into to more uh, radical discussions. You've got a series here in this book, in this collection of poetry, uh, on education. <laughs> now, this strikes a chord with me. That's my background. Um, but here we go. Fetish commodity. I used to be brave. Emancipation eludes me now. There's nothing real in what I get paid to do. Rhetoric and composition. In-text citation. As useful to my students as sex education to celibate eunuchs. Pedagogy in the ideological gloss. As a boy... I had a penchant for walking out. Life is possible as necessity come contingency. In the way of a notion, desire must become a drive. I used to fly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Disillusionment with education? Not so. And look, maybe, maybe. I mean, this, I wrote this when I was working at a private American university in Dubai. So if you ah. want to be disillusioned with education or with anything else for that matter, you can work for a private American university in Dubai. Uh, no, I, I, no, no, no. You know, uh, I had a good colleagues there, etc. Some, some great students. But, but I think it's more about the disillusionment with um, having a job, especially the kind of job that one would have thought is a good 
bourgeois profession, you know, becoming an academic. I, I had the, I had thoughts that this would, you know, what make me more elevated than my proletarian actuality. You know, I could, I would not be a wage slave. I would be a wage. I don't know. I don't know. Not even a wage earner. I would be an intellectual, creative. <laughs> influencer or something like that. In actual fact, you realize, no, you are a wage slave um, and that you weren't working for money and you have to work in the interest of an increasing capital, increasing investment. Mm. And and when you realize that, you just think, well, what am I doing? Does it have any value at all? Or is it just about shifting money, capital from the investor, one pocket to the other pocket of another investor. But the idealism of mm. becoming a teacher, of thinking mm. about what you're imparting, from my own experience, mm. a lot of that's been overtaken by assessment protocols mm. and all yeah. of these sorts of things. Mm. And so education, again, should be the touchstone sure. for our culture and things that we value or acquainting students Absolutely. so that they can find those elements of the culture that resonate with them. No, you're spot on. I mean, my experience at the American Uni, and this is before, um, before you know, I came back to Australia and saw some of these things happening in Australia as well, was that you know, when I said exactly that to my American colleagues and said, why are you people so obsessed with that assessment every mm. week? Why? And they said, oh, they said we have George Bush, George W. Bush to thank for that. And I said, well, great. You know, how did he do this one? And they said, well, it's a policy called No Child Left Behind. So when he gets in, he says, look, when our children are not being educated properly, blah, 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 of course, it has to do with underfunding and underpaying teachers. But no, we can't say that. It has to do with the fact that the kids are not being tested rigorously and frequently enough. And, and now, now that, that's, that's, you know, Bush is a villain and all of that. We can say that. But what, what I think this collection of poems deals with and what, I, what I've come, especially since my time in Dubai, since the GFC of 2008, I've realized is that is the complicity of progressive ideology in all of this. Because if somebody had said, and Bush totally co-opted and exploited this view, is saying, look, what is bad about Hang on, we had our own education revolution here, courtesy of a Labour prime minister. You know, um, so this is this obsession with control, testing, over assessment is actually has a quote unquote progressive dimension. Some people might even call it left wing. Hey, we want to empower marginal kids to learn better. Well, how 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 great of you, but it is obviously as as I identified is actually destroying the very intrinsic use value of education. Mm. Well, I mean, no child left behind. I was talking to some American mm. teachers, mm. and basically, economically, what mm. happened was a whole new series of books had to be produced for those children that were labelled and then taught, and they had to be taught towards a system. So they became part of an economic cycle as well, yep. and um, publishers made a fortune yeah. producing books for that new mm. category mm. of students so mm. that they... Get a, again, could be tested. Yeah. And we've got the same problem here with NAPLAN. Mm. And unfortunately, Julia Gillard, who uh, mm. promoted education, introduced the uh, My School web mm -hmm. page or whatever, where we could compare and categorise mm. and rank schools, which yeah. was totally anathema to sort of helping developing Progressing yeah, education. Absolutely. Wow. And I mean, I mean, I think uh, a sort of a backdrop to the poems in the book is this idea of the so self-proclaimed left-wing governments, the center-left or whatever you want to call them, being 
not just complicit, but being the ring, being the being the harbingers, being the mascots of this kind of neoliberal uh, brutality. And and you know, at that point, well, someone like me, I can become disillusioned, I can become nihilist, or I can go further to the left and say, you know what? If we had something called communism, if we had something called Marxism, and this is where the book heads to. But is is communism and Marxism going to lead us uh, out of all of this? Yes. And yes. Yes. Well, in due course. <laughs> in, 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 in due, due course. course. Yes. Yes. Not, we're not there yet, um, comrade. But I'll I'll let you know. I will uh, send everybody a text. Uh, yeah. No, no, we're not there yet. I mean, I mean, in due course. That's that is the only outcome. That seems to me the only well, all this barbarity, as we used to say, social barbarism or socialism, fascism or uh, I mean, you know, that's we're not there yet. I don't, I don't think you know so many people that are being branded as fascists are anything like real fascists. But when when we get there, we'll know it, and they will be you know again you know goose stepping possibly and and slaughtering people en masse. And there we will say, well, do we come together, share our resources? once and for all get rid of the profit motive and return to the social value of being a society, we can do that. Are people capable of thinking yeah. collectively and for the good of others? I think we are. I mean, we do it at small social uh, units in family. Most of us do mm. that probably. In our work environments, some, some of us do it. I mean, I do it. We can make decisions collectively, you know, like, you know, uh, what should we have for dinner tonight? Mm. We, we can we can make that decision, you know. Uh, how are we gonna are we gonna you know go away for a holiday or spend that money to buy a buy a buy a new toaster? We can make mm. those decisions, and I think we have we certainly have the capacity for collectivity. The question is that a big massive you know superstructure and economic system that we have are are you know an engine? We're there a train. We're on this train that is going its own way. We can get off it. But for that to happen, we need events, we need revolutions, we might even need catastrophes. I'm not, I'm not an accelerationist, but I do think that history, I mean, there's, it's simply inevitable that the system we live in today will not be able to sustain itself. And that's, that to me is a truism. So, Well, you've got a, you a poem here entitled Election Announced, and there's a lovely, <laughs> lovely line. Uh, will it stop the Aussie theocrat retributivist in speedos? Mm. Um, now, I had to look the word retributivist <laughs> up. Um, believes the sole just end of punishment is to make the morally blameworthy suffer mm. and um who goes around in speedos <laughs> well a certain tony abbott but that you know that poem is about the idea of elections and i think it's in a part of my mocking of abbott was that look it's easy to do yes abbott trump boris johnson putin these are people we can mock and deride although by doing that we, we miss the fact that we're actually playing straight into their hands because they want to be mocked they are clowns so if by laughing at them we're doing precisely what we want them they want us to do but but i, I kind of say they're not well they're the enemy but not the only and perhaps not the real enemy the real enemy is maybe the system of who this is going to sound maybe i don't know what voting democracy who are we voting for what if we wanted to have direct people power i think that's 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 going to be a better solution than you know trying to find a good person who's going to run against Tony Abbott. I mean, we've had our progressive, we've had our Obama moment. The humanity had their Obama moment, and that completely backfired, and that produced Trump. So, you know, I rest my case. But that represents the people. I mean, these um, Trump Ooh, and okay. the likes of him 
um, knew how to play yeah. the system. Well, they, 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 they appeal to the lowest, I would say, the most repressed senses of sense of resentment that people, ordinary people like you know, my, hmm. you two, I certainly have. They appeal to that in a very kind of crude, opportunistic way. So yes, they do represent aspects of people, but there are different ways of talking about a people. So this is the difficulty when talking about a collective decision-making mm. process, mm. that um, not everyone's on the same wavelength, and mm. there are those that can manipulate mm. Um, mm. The, the common man, so to speak. Um, which is is the frightening thing. I mean, we still have people mm. voting for the nuff nuffs in Parliament that we've got. <laughs> they are so they're, they're active uh, voters mm. Mm. that put these people in power. Mm. Mm. Yes, um, you know we we're locked in. I mean, we have to in Australia. Voting is compulsory anyway, and we mm. can we can do what we must do. But and I do think little steps in the right direction are good. I mean, I genuinely wish that you know Corbyn had won the previous election I I do think from what I understand that a Bernie Sanders presidency would be a good thing but I'm also very realistic I remember being very excited when Syriza won in Greece and that became a huge disappointment uh, partly because there is so much that can be done within the within the superstructure of an uh, uh, you know what uh, philosopher Alan Badiou calls capital parliamentarianism in the West today all forms of democratic politics are absolutely anchored to the interest of capital and and profitability and it's raising the capital the, uh, that pays for this politician well, i mean true. bloomberg's gonna buy oh, yeah. you know <laughs> trump has bought his oh no he's a progressive i love him <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to round this interview out the poem well the anthology ends on the international rise mm. up condemned masses of the earth rise up you prisoners of need listen to the volcanic rumble of truth the truth of the eruption of the end so there's mm. uh, your a uh, uh, calling out it actually reminded me of Henry Lawson, hmm. believe it or not. We have a tradition in Australia hmm, of such things. Totally. His poem, Song of the Republic, which was, again, a call to the people. Um, are you calling on the people to step forward? Or? Sure. I mean, I, 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 I am. But, but you know, this is just a little book of poems. So, so you know, in certain moments, certain things can have more, more gravity. It's a beginning. Oh. We've got to start somewhere. Poetry is a way of expressing and voicing these ideas to have people think about these ideas, mm. which is the important thing. Um, so perhaps we need to start by looking um, at such works. Would you like to say a word or two about the launch of this collection sure. that you've got coming well, up? It's being launched tonight uh, at at the Paperback Bookstore, which is, as your readers would know, you know one of Melbourne's great um, literary establishments, um, and it is um, which is which is on uh, Burke uh, Burke Street, um, as as you all know, it is it is um, sixty Burke Street. Um, it's, it starts at um, six. And it's the book is being launched by by the by the great poet and scholar of Australian poetry Philip Mead. I'm very very honoured that Philip is going to launch it, and I will be reading some poems. There will be there will be alcohol, and you will come and <laughs> now, drink. Alcohol and poetry reasonably. go very well together. I know, but you know there won't be bottomless kegs of beer, but there will be some libation. Alcohol, libation, yeah. Hope to see you all there. 
Well, the anthology is Towards the End, the poet Ali Alizade. And so it's from Giramondo Press. So, Ali, thank you for coming in today. Great. Thank you, David. That was great.